It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I had a great morning yesterday. I hope you had a good weekend. Of course, I'm going to talk about Media Buzz, but the reason it was personally very satisfying for me, also very challenging, was that for the first time in more than a year, I was in an actual, real, up-to-date, state-of-the-art, major league television studio. Now, the last previous two Sundays, I had gone back to Fox's Washington Bureau to try to, you know, end the era of home broadcasting. Look, there's a lot of advantages to doing this from the basement dungeon, particularly on commuting. You know, you're done, you come upstairs, time for lunch, right? But there's so many technical things that can go wrong with television when you're doing from your house. The Wi-Fi can go down. Uh, We use an app called LiveView. It's very balky. I've had a couple of instances where I've been knocked off the air for like 90 seconds or two minutes. The last time it happened was during a commercial. So now that things have progressed to the point where everybody's comfortable at least going in once a week. I went in the last couple of weeks and did it from like, you know, perfectly nice little closet kind of studio. But there is, for the first time uh, in the Washington Bureau, a brand new, and it's still a work in progress, and we have a lot more to do in terms of being able to use more of the studio and the big monitors, but basically to sit there with multiple cameras and good lighting and professional makeup and a lot of room, um, it felt more like a television show. Now, unfortunately, it's just me, me and a floor director, because we're not at the point, and I don't think anybody in television is at the point where you can have guests come in and sit there because everybody still needs to be worried about the pandemic and social distancing. Uh, And, you know, there's just no substitute. We've all tried really, really hard um, to make good television when people are on Skype or they're sitting in their house or even if they're in another studio. It's just not the same in terms of you being able to look at them, the rhythm, especially with a panel. Uh, But that is coming. I think it's not coming for a few months, but it is coming. Uh, But still, you know, and it was also challenging because you have to know when to turn from one camera to another. And one time I blew it because I didn't quite get the signal. Uh, And that's okay. It's live television. People understand. Uh, But just the possibilities of doing real television. And look, uh, this is not about the substance of the show. I happen to think we had a pretty good show as well. Uh, And you can look up those uh, segments on on my Facebook page or my Uh, Twitter feed or whatever. We'll talk a little bit more about that coming up. Uh, But just, you know, it is the television business. It is a visual medium. You want to look good. You want uh, the set to look good, new graphics behind me, all of that, which we're going to work on. We're going to tweak. I'm sure we'll make some mistakes. Um, But anyway, felt good about that. Nice to be back in an actual television studio. You know, when I left, uh, along with everybody else, I mean, who had any idea that it would be this long? That, you know, the pandemic would intensify to the point that uh, it would take so long for television to be television, even to be back in a studio. And, you know, I've seen a little debate about should people post selfies of themselves getting vaccines? And one of the reasons it kind of rubs me the wrong way is I personally know many, 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 many people. And there are millions, there there are tens of millions of people across the country who haven't been able to get a vaccine appointment and they're not in the right group. And now that in most states, in the next week, this will be true. You're over 16. You don't need a pre-existing condition. You don't need to have a frontline job. Everybody will be eligible to finally get either the Pfizer or the J&J or the Moderna vaccine. But 
getting an appointment is a whole different thing. And they're all, you know, it's, anybody who's tried to do this know you try to get on the websites and they say nothing available. And then you try different zip codes and then someone tells you, oh, I got an appointment here. And you go over there and there's nothing uh, uh, or you think you're going to get it. And it is just an exercise in frustration. I, hope, you know, I do know more people who have been able to get the vaccine. Um, but I know many people have had to travel long distances to get the vaccine, driving several hours or waiting several hours at one of these mass vaccination sites. Is it worth it? It's absolutely worth it. This is an, a life-saving vaccine. And then there's this other group of people who are like, ah, I'm not in any hurry or I don't really want to get it or I don't trust it. And I, I just don't have, I just can't quite grasp that. Um, so let me talk a little bit about uh, a couple of stories that caught my eye today about President Biden. And then I want to talk about Greg Gutfeld being on my show and Donald Trump, and we'll get into it. Um, So when you have trouble reaching a goal, one of the things that you can do if you're creative, and especially in politics, is you you just change the terms of definition. You say, oh, I totally met the goal. You just didn't realize that the goal meant this other thing, not the thing that everybody else thought it was originally. Uh, we have some of that semantic game playing going on with the infrastructure bill. You know, Republicans are saying, well, only 5% of the infrastructure bill is for highways, roads, uh, bridges, and tunnels. Uh, I think it's more like 25% if you include things that traditionally have been counted as infrastructure, ports, airports. Uh, I would even include broadband because, you know, in the 21st century, how do you compete? You have to have, you know, fast internet connections. In addition to that, you know, President Biden, this is the train leaving the station, $2 trillion. Just saw a story this morning about um, lobbyists trying to get all of their pet projects in. So you do have, you know, home care for the elderly and a whole bunch of other things that are maybe perfectly noble causes, but they're not really infrastructure, but we'll just call them infrastructure. I don't think it's a very useful debate. The debate should be, how much do we want to spend? How much can we afford to spend? What are worthy projects that we can put in here, whether they begin with the I word or not? And how do we pay for it? And then you get into the whole side debate, and it's really the underpinning of the debate, about do we raise taxes on people or families earning more than $400,000? Well, that's what Biden campaigned on. Uh, pretty popular, you know, tax the rich. Do we raise corporate taxes? Uh, you know, as I've said on the podcast, it was 35% when Trump took office. He knocked it down to 21%. Biden wants to go to 28 There might be a deal there potentially with the Republicans if there's any kind of deal possible at all. But on this question of bipartisanship, I mean, if there was one thing that Joe Biden ran on um, during a tough campaign, during a, a virtual campaign because of the pandemic, uh, it was bipartisanship. It was reaching across the aisle. It was unity. It was to help heal the country and all of that. And nevertheless... We have a situation where he passed the $1.9 trillion COVID aid package, which wasn't all COVID aid. Yes, some of it was labor union bailouts, but nevertheless, most of it was economy and COVID related with zero Republican votes. And there is what I think is a very strong possibility. You know, Biden is meeting today with a group of Republican and Democratic lawmakers, but, you know, they're going to be pretty far apart, especially on how to pay for it. There's a strong possibility that they will use this magic wand reconciliation project to pass the $2 trillion, quote, infrastructure bill with only Democratic votes. So on that score, you'd have to say, well, Biden talked about bipartisanship. He's not getting it done. Aha. Here's the deal, as somebody likes to say. Uh, Washington Post story says that, oh, no, no, this thing that you thought was bipartisanship, 
This doesn't only apply to Republican members of Congress. This applies to Republicans anywhere. Post says the president and his advisors have signaled that what they are, while they are planning robust outreach to Republican lawmakers, they are prepared to pass his infrastructure bill on the votes of Democrats along and call it a bipartisan victory. Ding, ding, ding. See, we did it. Okay, so how? what's the semantic um, trick here? The reason you know the Biden White House wanted this story out is a lot of top people are on the record. Usually you're lucky if you get like one senior person. When you get two or three, you know that you had the cooperation of said White House. So here's uh, Anita Dunn, senior Biden advisor in the White House, worked in the Obama White House, was a key figure in the campaign, somebody I've known a long time. If you looked up bipartisan in the dictionary, I think it would say support from Republicans and Democrats, says Anita Dunn. It doesn't say the Republicans have to be in Congress. Okay. As the Biden administration prepares to pursue a broad agenda, ranging from infrastructure to immigration to guns, We'll see if the gun thing goes anywhere. Uh, the president and his aides have, pro- have proffered a definition of bipartisanship untethered from Washington. How convenient. Pointing to broad public support for many Democratic policies among voters in both parties, as well as Republican governors, mayors, and other local officials. Okay, here's a quote from Rahm Emanuel. Uh, former Obama chief of staff, former mayor of Chicago, former Clinton White House staffer, which was when I first met Rahm. So Rahm says, what's become crystal clear is that Biden has redefined bipartisan. You don't need an executive order for that. You just sort of tell the media this is what's going on. Um, Biden himself said in Pittsburgh during a speech, everybody said I had no bipartisan support, but the overwhelming bipartisan support were Republican, registered Republican voters. Okay, here's another top White House official in this Washington Post piece. The Biden definition of bipartisanship is an agenda that unifies the country and appeals across the political spectrum. I think it's a pretty good definition to say you're pursuing an agenda that will unite the country, that will bring Democrats and Republicans together across the country. Presumably, if you have an agenda that is broadly popular with Democrats and Republicans, then you should have elected representatives reflecting that. Now, I want to pause here and say, this is not a crazy argument. I mean, it may well be that the Republican Party under Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy has decided for its own uh, political reasons that it's not going to play ball, that it thinks it it doesn't agree with what Biden's doing, spending way too much money, money we don't need, kitchen sink approach, don't want to raise taxes, don't want to raise corporate taxes, don't want to raise taxes on affluent taxpayers. Okay, that's the way politics is played. Now, if this was the Trump White House, And the Trump White House had pushed through not just the tax cuts, but the next major bill, uh, spending a couple trillion dollars with zero Democratic votes. Do you think the media would be running sympathetic pieces saying, well, you know, he's got some Democrats out in the country who support this and he has a few Democratic mayors? Of course not. But I can understand them trying to do that because I do think uh, on infrastructure, I mean, everybody likes infrastructure because it's all local. It's like, hey, we can fix this bridge which has been falling down. You know that extra tunnel that we need? And, of course, they're surveying the Hill to try to get the, you know get some pork barrel politics going so that maybe you get some support from the other side. But the fact is that if you don't have one party playing, I mean, that's the Biden argument. The Republican Party isn't really serious. Well, the Republican Party isn't serious because the Republican Party doesn't think that we should be spending $4 trillion total. And that's not even the end of it. There's another, a third bill coming, uh, which is more focused on family matters and so forth. We'll get into that. 
later on. So uh, the Biden White House is saying, no, 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 this is all bipartisan. It just doesn't depend on Congress. It's people out in the country. Look, the polls show infrastructure is popular. The COVID bill was popular. So this, And there are some local uh, Republican officials who are backing some of what President Biden wants to do. But there's a little bit of a linguistic shell game going on here. Okay. Similarly, we have a piece in Politico about uh, Biden's media strategy. We've talked about this, but it's now uh, almost official because Politico says so. Three months in, Joe Biden's White House has settled on a firm press strategy. First, do no self-harm. Okay, and here's the summary. President is not doing cable news interviews. Well, that is really pissing people off in cable news, I have to tell you. What do you mean he's not doing cable news interviews? What about us? He needs to be out there talking on cable shows. I mean, he's done a couple, and he did the you know CNN Town Hall with Anderson Cooper. But by and large, you know, even with the people who are the most liberal cable hosts out there, you don't see him on Rachel Maddow. You don't see him with Joy Reid. You don't see him with Lawrence O'Donnell. You don't see him with Don Lemon. That could change. You know, uh, originally they said we were so busy with the pandemic emergency, he couldn't possibly have time. But now, as political points out, tweets from his accounts are limited, and when they come, unimaginably conventional. I've been saying this for two years. You know, the Biden tweets are all sort of like, we also all work together. Like, it's fine. Noble sentiments, but they're just not that interesting. They don't make much news. The public comments that the president makes are largely scripted. Biden has opted fewer sit-down interviews with mainstream media outlets and reporters. He's had just one major news conference. Another is supposedly coming. And prefers remarks straight to camera for marquee moments. White House is leaning more heavily on cabinet officials to reach the audience that didn't tune into the latest Rose Garden event. It's the Hippocratic Oath for engagement with the Fourth Estate. Do no harm. And if that means criticism from the press and opponents about Biden's availability, so be it. And that's the part that I find interesting. I mean, it's a perfectly fine, well-reported piece. But in this whole piece, there's not any hint, other than that one line that I just read to you, of, you know what? A president has a responsibility to communicate with the public through the media. You know what? Um, the president really should do interviews because that's how he can sell his ideas and presidents see that as part of the job. You know what? Here's the head of the White House Correspondents Association saying President Biden needs to engage more with the press, that this is not acceptable. None of that is in the piece. Now, I, I didn't even have to tell you that Donald Trump was the exact opposite, and we'll get into that in just a couple minutes. Um, but even as political acknowledges compared to Barack Obama, Barack Obama did a lot more uh, interviews, and in his second term, Barack Obama started doing podcasts. He did that one, one with that woman named Glozell, who was famous for eating Fruit Loops in her bathtub. He did Between Two Ferns. You know, he started reaching out to all alternate uh, means of communication. You're not seeing that either from... Uh, Joe Biden. Okay, here's Deputy Communications Director Kate Berner telling Politico, our communication strategy is based on innovation in the digital space, flooding the zone in regional and coalitions press, meaning we talk to local papers or local radio or local TV, and effectively using traditional national media. He's the president. He's got a lot on his plate. We have people fanning out every single day across different media to amplify his message. We don't let his schedule be a limiting factor for us. In other words, he's so busy. Oh, here she says we use the cabinet. And in fact, that is true. Uh, a lot more people, I mean, just this, uh, just yesterday, actually. Uh, let's see, Pete Buttigieg was out there on Fox News Sunday. Uh, Jennifer Granholm was on this week. She's the energy secretary. 
Uh, Buttigieg also appeared on CNN State of the Union, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on Meet the Press. Uh, so they are using the cabinet a lot, and that's okay. Eric Schultz, uh, senior advisor to President Biden. There's a media ecosystem in Washington that has to be respected, but if you rely on that solely to get your message out, that is a mistake. Um, Robert Gibbs, who was, of course, uh, Barack Obama's first press secretary, quoted in this piece as saying, I used to have these uh, discussions with President Obama that we were laying too much of the communications on top of him. In reality, once you elevate it to the role of the president commenting on it, you really can't go backwards. It's fully owned by them. All right, look, this makes sense because, for one thing, Biden is not a great orator. For another thing, he does fine interviews. I thought he did fine at the press conference. He didn't really get pressed really hard uh, by the reporters there who said, you know, you're such a moral, decent guy, and why don't we get rid of the, rid of the filibuster so you can pass your agenda? But nevertheless, he makes gaffes. Look, this is a guy who said once said he's a gaff machine. And so um, they're playing to his strengths. And they don't see dealing with the press as one of the strengths. And, of course, if you go on cable news and you want to talk about, let's say, the infrastructure bill, well, of course, the anchor or the reporter is going to say, well, what about the situation at the border? And what about this criticism from Mitch McConnell? And how are you going to get the gun thing through? And what about your, your dog is still biting people? Major, I read, is getting more training, more re-education camp. And, you know, you got to be able to to hit the curveballs and the, the screwballs and the change-ups, uh, as well as the fastballs. Look, he's the president. He can do whatever he wants. But I'm going to be critical that he doesn't talk to the press more. Maybe that will evolve over time, but Politico seems to be owning it now. Okay, they're not even, you know, like, oh, it's early. We haven't had time. This is our strategy. We want to use the cabinet. They probably could use Kamala Harris more. She occasionally does interviews. They don't tend to make that much news because she obviously doesn't want to get out ahead of the president. But they're owning it. So here is uh, a tweet from a member of the GOP leadership, Senator John Cornyn. Cornyn says that Joe Biden is not really in charge of his administration. Why? Here's the tweet. President is not doing cable news interviews. Tweets from his account are limited. And when they come, unimaginably conventional. That's from that Washington Post piece. The public comments are largely scripted. Biden has opted for fewer sit-down interviews with mainstream report outlets and reporters. Okay, so Cornyn quotes the Washington Post piece and therefore concludes that Joe Biden isn't really in charge of his administration. Hey, it's a strategy, folks. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Now, uh, going back to Media Buzz, I had Greg Gutfeld on of The Five, and he just launched this new uh, late night sort of comedy and policy show, 11 Eastern, and we'll see how that does. He's off to a good start in the ratings. And I asked him about a segment, I asked Greg about a segment that he did on his new show, which was about the media obsessed with Trump. And some other, even on other channels, are saying, are oh, the media still obsessed with Trump? How obsessed are they? Um, and, and Gutfeld sort of owned up to it. He says, well, yeah, I admit that I'm addicted to Trump. He said, Trump is a drug for the media. And he says, but I'm upfront about it. I think he's the most fascinating political personality of my lifetime. The others, Greg says, are like, oh, I guess we have to cover what he said, but it's just so painful. But in reality, and he pointed this out, and I've pointed this out a million times, Trump, even in Mar-a-Lago, even as a former president, is good for ratings. He's good for clicks. He says and does stuff that is controversial. He mixes it up. He whacks people. He does many of the things that President Biden doesn't do because Biden's got a different approach. So, on Saturday night, 
Donald Trump. There wasn't any cameras there, but uh, you know it was widely reported by New York Times, Politico, Washington Post, and the Post had the best piece. Said a whole lot of stuff at a gathering of the RNC at Mar-a-Lago, uh, and he unloaded on Mitch McConnell. He called Mitch McConnell a dumb son of a bitch. He also said the minority leader of the United States Senate is a stone-cold loser. And he said, I hired his wife. Did he ever say thank you? Uh, what happened is Trump hired Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, who had been in the cabinet under Bush to be transportation secretary. He's pissed because she resigned after the January 6th riot at the Capitol. McConnell criticized him. McConnell's not commenting. He's not engaging on this. But he ripped. I mean, you know, so the, so here, me, everybody else, you know, had to raise the question, well, how much attention does this deserve? Well, look, if the former president of the United States, who still has a really strong following among Republicans, is basically declaring rhetorical war on the guy who carried his water for four years, the Republican leader of the United States Senate, who is the most powerful, influential person in, in Washington, I would say, a Republican, that is, I think that's news. And he, he went after Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia. He tossed out his boring speech. He said it was BS. Um, there were a bunch of Republican donors there. Some of them were reported to have left before he was finished talking to say he was just doing the greatest hits and they didn't like all the attacks. He also went after uh, Mike Pence. He says, oh, I like him so much. I was so disappointed. I wish Mike Pence had the courage to send the election back to the legislatures. So he's still on the stolen election thing. And look, I'm just going to say it. Mike Pence, the vice president, as disappointed as Donald Trump may be, he did not have the power. He was just presiding over that session. The certification of the Electoral College, he had no power whatsoever to send it back to the state legislatures, but Trump is sticking to his version. And then he went after Fauci. He said Fauci was full of crap. Same kind of stuff he did when Fauci was in office and he was in office. I mean, when Fauci was um, on the coronavirus task force as opposed to being President Biden's really top medical advisor on virus stuff. Uh, and he went off about the, the first pitch that Fauci threw out. It is a lot of greatest hits. So that raises the question, how much attention should this get? And I raised this on the air. You know, he's fighting with McConnell. He's fighting with Fauci. He's fighting with uh, other people, dissing Pence. It's news. It's interesting news. But I saw a study I meant to grab for you. Maybe we'll talk about it tomorrow, that Trump's engagement on social media, though there's people engaging with him, is lower than it's been in five years. Why? Because he's off Twitter, because he's off Facebook, because he's off Instagram. He's putting out these statements. The press covers them, but clearly it's, you know, you can't retweet it. It doesn't generate the same, you know, tweets and retweets and clicks and Facebook likes and all of that. Finally, let me get to Substack. Now, I always question, should I even talk about Substack? Because I think Substack, I bet you 85% of the people listening to this podcast don't even actually quite know what Substack is. I think it primarily appeals to the Gang of 500. It's a media story, so it appeals to a lot of media people. It's kind of an inside baseball story. But I do think there's something important there, not just about Substack, which basically it's, it's, it's a, a digital newsletter. The reason it gets so much attention, the reason that Ben Smith is writing about it this morning in his New York Times media column, is because it's offered an alternative model for journalists to make money by communicating, by servicing, by engaging directly with people who like them, their fans. And there are other services like this, like OnlyFans, used by actors and actresses and celebrities and, I guess, porn people, where, you know, you like somebody, you want to see their content, you're willing to pay a small fee, 
And if the, that performer or person can get enough people to subscribe at the small fee, or maybe it's $5 a month or whatever, they can make a living. Actually, on Substack, you can make a lot of money. So because Substack has got people like Glenn Greenwald, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist who was on Media Buzz the week before this week, and now Andrew Sullivan, who has worked for a lot of different places. I mean, he was the former editor of the New Republic, pioneer of blogging, has worked for Time, has worked for the New York Times, most recently uh, worked for New York Magazine, but he wasn't woke enough as a sort of conservative who kind of liked Obama and hates Trump. The New York Magazine got rid of him. He goes to Substack. So let me get to some of Ben Smith's points here. Uh, because I do think there is, even if you don't care about how much money media people make, I do think there's, there's a larger uh, discussion here about the prevailing uh, notion of the media. So, especially during the pandemic, you know, basically what Substack, Substack does is uh, it lets you, it gives you the tools to email a whole bunch of people for free. And you charge subscribers, whatever, you know, you think they, that you're worth. And whatever you take in, Substack takes a 10% fee. Now, uh, here's a guy named Casey Newton who left The Verge to start a new newsletter on Substack, says, the mindshare Substack has in media right now is insane. It's a target for a lot of people to project their anxieties. So, but there's this other special category on Substack, people like Greenwald, people like Andrew Sullivan and a few others, uh, Matt Iglesias, um, who get special deals where Substack will pay them a lot of money up front, kind of like an advance when you write a book. Could be, let's say, a couple hundred thousand dollars. But then Substack gets to keep most of your subscription revenue. So Substack is betting that you will attract a broad enough audience that will give you the money up front. So you're guaranteed. Even if you flop, if you belly flop, you still get paid. But if you hit it big and suddenly uh, many hundreds of thousand dollars are coming in subscription fees, Substack takes most of it. So uh, there's somebody here who says, you know, it would have been a mistake for me to do this because I would have ended up losing a lot of money. So by the way, Ben Smith uh, has a little parenthetical where he says that, you know, Substack is reaching out to some more prominent journalists to try to build its profile. And that includes him, Ben Smith, says he turned down a nice offer for Substack to pay him more money than he was making at the New York Times if he would lend his name and profile to Substack. I think he also likes working at the New York Times. And he says, look, I think media people, sometimes we overestimate uh, our appeal because we are media people, we're self-centered, we talk to other media people and all of that. Okay. But apparently Substack is going after other people at the New York Times, including an opinion writer named Charlie Warzel. I happened to see Warzel on Twitter last night. I don't know the guy personally say, saying, well, Ben Smith uh, scooped me on my own news. So, by the way, here I am on Twitter. I'm going to Substack. I'm starting something called Galaxy Brain. Uh, Subject has quoted a number of Times writers, but Wurzel is leaving the New York Times to do this. Now, this is interesting. The Times wouldn't comment on Wurzel leaving, but it's trying to sort of respond to Substack. So, for example, Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winning uh, liberal economist and columnist for the New York Times, had a free newsletter on Substack. You can also just distribute it and say, okay, you don't have to pay me. Or you can say 10% of my content will be uh, behind a paywall, but the rest of it is free. So the Times said, you know what? That Substack uh, newsletter you have, Paul, we'd like it to be on the New York Times. So it's moving to the New York Times platform. Uh, Jessica Lesson, she's the founder and editor-in-chief of The Information 
uh, Silicon Valley subscription newsletter said part of the Substack Edge was sophisticated marketing around acquiring and retaining subscribers. Um, so, uh, Roxanne Gay is a writer who said she earned back her advance. She took one of those advances. Um, within about two months, uh, Matt Iglesias, who went there from Vox, the liberal site, said taking the advance wound up costing him $400,000 in subscription revenue. In other words, if he hadn't taken the advance and he just relied uh, on people, but he didn't know how many people were going to pay to read him, right? And that's the question for, for many of us. Look, the good part of it is it gets you out from under the corporation. You can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. You don't have an editor, right? Journalists like that. It gives you a certain freedom. The bad part is you're kind of off the main grid. You know, you're not appearing on cable news. You're not appearing on major websites. You're not appearing in major newspapers. But you can make some money and be your own boss and work at home and all that good stuff. So I probably spent more time than some of you wanted to hear. But I do think to the extent to which this is becoming a business model and is having or may potentially have an effect on the big, big media corporations, then I think it's been worth spending a little bit of time on. Plus, it's a podcast. I get to talk about what uh, I want. I hope it is stuff that you like hearing about. And if you want to leave a comment on Apple iTunes, I like getting the feedback. You could also subscribe there if you're in the mood or on Google Podcasts or on your Amazon device. Hey, we'll see you all tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.